On October 25, 2022, Robert Greenway, CEO of the Abraham Accords Institute for Peace, addressed the Foreign Policy Forum. In the two years since the first signing, six Arab countries have signed on to the Abraham Accords to normalize relations with Israel and other players in the region have gained the confidence needed to strengthen trade agreements and commercial ties. As a principal architect of the Accords, Robert Greenway shared how the benefits of the Abraham's Accords could bring about future stability, security, and economic growth for the region. Please enjoy the forum. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you to the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and all of you for taking the time uh, to join us tonight. I intend to get to question and answer as quickly as possible because I'm more interested uh, in your questions uh, than in what I have to say. But I will provide, I think, a little bit of a framework for, at least in my judgment, where the Accords are and where they are headed. And a brief uh, comment up front uh, that uh, our vision uh, behind the Accords and what we envisioned the potential to be. So with that in mind, the work really started about two years or 18 months in advance of the conclusion of the Accords. It all seemed to happen in a very short period of time. There's some truth in that for a variety of circumstances. Our goal all along was to align all of our partners and allies in the Middle East and North Africa around United States interests as they had been, but in ways that previously weren't possible because we were approaching this in a bilateral way. And with Israel as the core of that, as our principal and most strategic investment in the region. And I think we made some inroads in doing exactly that. I would say too that from the beginning, our goal was to build an economic relationship between these countries and a people-to-people -people contact between them because in our minds, the foundation of enduring peace begins at that level. And so that an economic foundation would require a security rationale. And by that, I mean, if you have an economic relationship, if you trade with a country, you're prone to defend it, especially if it's mutually beneficial. And in our minds, that was uh, a, a, a certainly a more productive path uh, than we think that was taken in 79-94. And not to disparage either agreement because they preceded ours and were fundamental in changing the region. But we recognized that it was a cold peace in 79-94 with Egypt and Jordan. And what we had intended to create was a warm peace between countries that would endure with significantly less investment even from the United States uh, uh, point of view. With that in mind, we were able to eventually conclude the agreement, uh, and in a short period of time, I think we changed the region in some fundamental ways. The progress that's been made, I think, is a testament to it. None of that progress has, came, uh, has come without significant effort uh, on the part of all participants. I think we all remember we're still recovering from a global pandemic, which these agreements were concluded during and really at the beginning of. And certainly that impacts the contact between nations. And yet they've made a commitment to, to proceed with this. And I think the U.S. role in this was central and remains central. That commitment uh, the United States made and continues to make will really drive the trajectory of the Accords going forward. And in most ways, I would say that the Accords would not have been brokered had not the United States take the leading role. And so as we look for expansion, which we are hopeful for, we expect that the United States will again play a critical role in ensuring that's the case. Now, uh, we also envision that this, uh, this constellation of partners and allies in the region would be a bulwark against threats and instability. We've done this in, uh, historically, but we've done this on an ad hoc case-by-case -case basis. So as a threat emerges, we establish alliances, agreements, and a constellation or coalition of countries to confront it. 
in our minds, something more enduring uh, as we've approached in other regions, particularly in Europe, make a great deal more sense. And again, a team can accomplish more than individual players can, and we think that that is a more successful formula for the accord. So our hope is, and our hope was then when we formed these, that a security relationship would at some point evolve from an economic and a people-to-people -people contact. Now, uh, I think uh, most uh, that follow the region, and Israel in particular, will see the positive reports of progress over the last uh, two years, and, uh, and I think that's rightly so. Uh, we, in, in a, on a, at the institute level, on a monthly basis, put out a comprehensive report. I'd encourage you to take a look at it if you don't already. And it catalogs the progress that takes place. Uh, it has, I think, accelerated from a trade and investment standpoint. UAE trade with Israel alone now is $1.62 billion a year to date. That eclipsed by uh, three orders of magnitude what the trade was with Egypt. Again, its longest standing Arab uh, neighbor with whom they have peaceful relations. And so you can see just in a short period of time what the potential is. And yet, I think, uh, and I'll talk about it in a minute, the potential to expand beyond that is even greater, especially when you look at what the countries can do working together, not just in isolation with each other. Trade and investment certainly are, I think, making uh, good progress. You'd expect it. This is a region that is uh, no stranger to trade and they're well acquainted with it. They are the gateway between many global markets. Where I think we think uh, the progress requires a little bit more time and attention and where we're focusing more of our efforts is on tourism, is on people-to-people -people contact and the perceptions behind it. And what I mean is there are lots of Israelis that are traveling to other Abraham Accords member countries for the first time. And that is significant. And for those of you that travel the region, you'll no doubt see the change. And running across Israeli tourists in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and in Manama, it never gets old. Um, but at the same time, you see fewer Arab Muslim Abraham Accord member countries, citizens in Israel. There are some, but there are a lot less. And I think that is something that we are concertedly working towards. Tourism itself is is, a, is an issue that crosses the cultural as well as the economic domain because most of these countries require a significant GDP contribution coming from tourism, Israel 6% alone. Again, recovering from the global pandemic. So the people-to-people -people contact is something we think needs a great deal uh, more work and will come in time. The second is related to it, and that is Arab-Muslim public perception for normalization and support for normalization and relationship with Israel. I think historically, as all of you will know, each country looks a little bit different. Uh, but at the same time, the trend has been against normalization with Israel as far as we know. Uh, polls, of course, I think we're all well familiar, especially this time of year with their accuracy. Uh, nonetheless, it provides some insight. What we saw at the fall of 20 when the accords were concluded, that popular support for normalization actually increased to historic highs and crested 50% support in many countries for the first time. In the last two years, it's declined back down to pre-normalization levels. That's going to take concerted effort to reverse if we're going to expand the accords and we hope to do it, and if we want to strengthen the bonds between the existing members. So that's an area where there is, I think, uh, required uh, additional time and attention. And we certainly are working to do exactly that, and we'd be happy to address questions uh, uh, in the second half of the program on those two fronts. Now, when it comes to potential, uh, this is where uh, it becomes, I think, a lot more significant. And so I'll talk about two areas as exemplars. The first is energy. And I mean, in this sense, not energy cooperation uh, between existing Abraham Accords member countries. That's certainly true. And we've seen that already. Mubadala has invested in Delek energy fields offshore in Israel, and that is tremendous. 
But that is nothing compared to what the region can do for Europe, now reeling from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and having to divest themselves from a dependency on Russian natural gas. So there's 435 trillion cubic feet of gas sitting in the Eastern Mediterranean that we know of. There's a lot more, probably, uh, that sits within Egyptian, Cypriot, Israeli, Lebanese, uh, Libyan, and other countries' uh, offshore exclusive economic zones. This could and should, in our view, compensate for the loss of Russian gas. It would build a strategic dependency on our partners and allies, not on competitors or adversaries. And it's possible to do, but it's going to require infrastructure investment, and it's going to require coordinated action among multiple countries in both continents. But the potential is huge. And we've been spending a lot of time in Europe to demonstrate what that is and to help, help uh, contribute and chart a path to doing that. And imagine Europe looking at Israel and the rest of the region not as a problem, not as a challenge, but as a partner, as a customer, as an economic uh, relationship. I think that strategic realignment has tremendous consequences and positive potential for us all. The second is on food. Uh, you could add healthcare and technological innovation as well, but food security is a pressing problem and it's going to get worse. Again, exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, two of the largest uh, wheat producers in the world, and those crops are disrupted for years to come. We're only on the beginning edge of this by most estimations. The problems will get worse. They're felt worse in countries that don't produce a lot of food. That includes a lot of countries in the Middle East and North Africa. The cooperative potential, again, between Europe and the Middle East and North Africa and the Abraham Accords member countries is significant. This is where countries like Sudan and the Accords have such tremendous potential. 15 years ago, Sudan was a net exporter. They've been a net importer because of bad management, mostly under Bashir. But since his removal, there's a huge desire, I think, to reverse that. The first step is to help produce food in Sudan for the Sudanese. The second step is to export as they once did. And where? To markets right across the Gulf. And that, I think, has tremendous potential. But it will take the Accords member countries working together to make that happen. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to help contribute to doing exactly that. The last, in terms of potential, that I would point to is the concrete uh, physical connections between the countries themselves. Right now, if you're moving between Asian and European and American markets, you're transiting the Middle East. And you're doing it at some expense, and there's a security risk associated with it, always. And you're going through several navigable choke points, which have been disrupted in recent years. What I would posit is the potential for connecting the overland routes between these countries. You could move food, for example, in 25% less time, 25% less cost between Asia and Europe, or between the Middle East and Europe, if you executed an overland route. And so our goal is to physically connect the countries and expand the trade, also to change the way that global markets work and are integrated. This, again, is where the collective potential the Accords can be manifest, and in our minds, what will bind them more strongly together and with other partners and allies in the region. It's a different view. You could look at what the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road, or One, Road, uh, one Belt, One Road initiative, and this is, I think, a positive uh, counter to that, uh, and I wouldn't negate the Chinese strategic uh, interests in the Middle East, which, again, we can talk to, uh, if you like, in the after uh, portion of the conversation. So, uh, to sum up, there has been, I think, uh, a tremendous progress made toward a vision of aligning U.S. partners and allies in the regions more closely together. Second, there's been a tremendous amount of potential and progress made. And third, the future holds, I think, for stronger and greater benefits for the Accords member countries and for the United States and our partners and allies outside. It's not something that is uh, just impacting the region. We stand to benefit a great deal from this constellation as well, and rightly so. 
And so last point I would leave you with is uh, the Institute was established in order to continue the work that we'd begun in the last administration, building the Accords. And we were asked really by all the Accord member countries to do that, to stay engaged and to remain engaged, because again, the U.S. support and assistance for this is so critical not to supplant what the government and only the government can do, but to complement its work. And so we work with the current administration and our partners, all of which uh, in the Accords member countries have official representatives at the Institute on our Honorary Advisory Council. And so it's incumbent upon us to work on their behalf and for their interests, again, where U.S. interests are so clear. And we are the only full-time organization working to support the Accords in any of the Accord member countries, including the United States. Keeps us busy, and we're happy to be so. And lastly, one of our greatest challenges and our greatest opportunities is to connect uh, groups and organizations like this and like others privately across the United States, across Europe, Asia, uh, to support and assist the Accords. We have a role to play. All of us have a contribution to make. And I think together we can make uh, a strong stance in support of the Accords member countries and encourage others to join. So with that, uh, I'll stop and I look forward to your questions and, and grateful again for the opportunity. Yes, ma'am. Ah, yeah. Okay. Amy and I will be at the sides of the room, so okay. if you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll bring the mic to you. In your monthly reports, um, if I look at one this evening, am I going to find uh, data about human rights in the member countries? So you will find instances where they have made progress or where they have established cooperation in human rights issues. But again, it reflects what progress is being made. So if there is progress made over a given month report, naturally you'll see it in there. The good news is, is all of these countries have a lot of convergent interests and human rights is one of them. I think we don't give the recognition that some of the countries in the region deserve in terms of progress on human rights. And I say that having visited the region and spending 30 years of my life there, more than 30 years. The progress being made now is real, it is tangible, and is unmistakable. If you were to visit most of these countries some 30 years ago, it's not just the presence of Israelis that would mar make a marked difference. It is the change in the culture and society, and in ways in which I think we would all be encouraged to see. That comes at a cost, and it's a great risk. And again, we should reinforce progress where it's being made. We're, we're quick, I think, too quick often to look at the region as, uh, as a problem, as a challenge, as a source of conflict. I think the reality is there's a, a land war in Europe and there's burgeoning signs of peace in the Middle East. That's not a usual circumstance, but it's also not accidental. And so I think we ought to take, uh, recognize that juxtaposition. Um, but it's a great question and it's an area of constant collaboration. Thank you, Mr. Greenway, for your comments. Uh, forgive my ignorance, but could you maybe spend a couple minutes to go into the Abraham Accords, specifically the countries that were involved in the Accords, and whether or not normalization was part of that, or if it was depending upon the country, whether normalization occurred between Israel and that other country? Thank you. So, a great question. Uh, so, normalization in the, versus the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords uh, include normalization. But there are countries that normalize that did not join the Abraham Accords, technically speaking, if that makes sense. So within the group of countries, the constellation of countries that signed the Abraham Accords Declaration, beginning with the White House signing ceremony on the 15th of September in uh, 2020, which was the United States witnessing Israel, UAE, and Bahrain. Later, uh, Sudan would join the Accords uh, as well. Morocco resumed diplomatic relations with Israel, but has yet to sign the Abraham Accords Declaration. 
Sudan later joined the Abraham Accords, uh, signed the declaration, and normalized diplomatic relations with Israel thereafter. We uh, at the Institute view Egypt and Jordan as legacy members, though they have not yet signed the Abraham Accords Declaration, which is mostly a statement of principle that I think all, all of us, including them, would not find objectionable in any way. Uh, and we also include Kosovo as not a Arab nation, but a m Muslim majority country who normalized diplomatic relations with Israel and in fact moved their embassy to Jerusalem as well. Does that answer your question, sir? Of course. Hi. Um, with the idea behind the Abraham Accords um, being religious in nature, uh, between obviously uh, Jews and Muslims, is the idea to stabilize the Middle East or to stabilize the relationship between um, the countries of the two religions? I.e., like, is the idea to go to, uh, like, is there a denominator? Is the amount of countries that you're basically saying, all right, we need these countries to be in the accords and then we're done? Or like, are we going to the Philippines, Indonesia, you know, et cetera, you know, et cetera? You know, are we going, you know, further down south into like most of Africa? So in sequence, um, the recognition or the, 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 the branding behind the accords, the reason we chose the Abraham Accords was to point to a common denominator having achieved it. So it wasn't the other way around. It was a recognition that these are in fact cousins separated you know, long ago, uh, and that has religious significance to be sure. And they embrace this um, for, for, I think, obvious and strong reasons. So uh, the agreements came first, and then it was a recognition that ultimately these are, in fact, cousins separated for a variety of reasons for some time. To your second point, is our goal, or is the Accords member nation's goal is to expand beyond Arab countries? And the answer is yes. And that's why Kosovo is not uh, an Arab country, but as a Muslim majority country. So to your point, in Asia, those countries that don't have full diplomatic relations with Israel are certainly on our list of goals and objectives, some closer than others, and some with which we had very detailed and advanced conversations before transitioning uh, presidential administrations, and with whom we still continue contact, and our hope is that they will in due course join. And again, it is not so much of, uh, in this case, reuniting Abraham's uh, you know, children, but it is still a recognition, though, that, that peace does, in fact, uh, address the long-term objectives and interests of multiple countries, and it's in the U.S. interest to expand Israel's relationship with its neighbors. Of course. Thank you. Uh -huh. Dovetail into those questions there, then. What would be the next priority countries that you think your organization would like to target if you're not already right now? And also, what do you think it would take ultimately, to get Saudi Arabia to buy in? <laughs> so I, the, the, I get this uh, question a lot. Um, first thing I always say is, no one heard about any of the Abraham Accords agreements until they were announced, which is rare, especially in DC, and especially for decisions of this magnitude. But not one of them was leaked at any point in time. First, because a very small group of people were involved. And second, because it was just a, a discipline and a trust issue. And I say that because uh, if you talk about these things before they happen, you're making it harder, not easier. And so if I sound circuitous, I'm not doing that to be cute. I'm doing it because I don't want to impede the progress of ongoing discussions. Now, what I will say about priority of expansion is we and the Accords member countries look at this much the same way. The prioritization is generally on, all right, is there a legitimate desire on the part of a country to expand its economic and 
security conversations with the state of Israel, uh, and that generally guides us down a certain path, but they're not all equal in either regard. So from an economic and security standpoint, countries are not equal in terms of the advantages of, of brokering a normalization with Israel. Now, as I said, we've had conversations with a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, before the transition occurred. So, and we maintain close contact with them. So it's not a mystery to us what's required in order to make this happen. And the principal impediment to this really comes down to security. And what I mean exactly is that the risk associated with any country in changing its course and deciding to make peace with and pursue full diplomatic relations with Israel comes at a security cost. Now, the, they're, they're comfortable with that so long as something addresses that risk. So if they're going to assume more security risk than they're already encumber, encumbering, then something has to address that risk. Something has to offset that. And that is not going to, in all likelihood, come from Israel. It's going to probably come from, if anywhere, from the United States. And so at the end of the day, the answer to that question for many countries in the Gulf in particular are unless someone can compensate for the security risk associated with the decision, then there's less incentive for them to do so. They're already in a precarious situation from a security standpoint. And that uh, forces them, I think, to make uh, decisions that ultimately lead in an opposite direction. Now, for those not in the region, I think the calculations are a little bit different. But I do think it's equally dependent on what the United States does or does not do. And so in most cases, if the U.S. is not involved in actively brokering these relationships, they're less likely to happen. And so our hope is that this will become a priority and that we will focus on this because the dividends and the impact are significant, not just in the region, but as I said, it impacts Europe as well. And so as we're trying to work with Europe to confront uh, the reality of how to make it through this winter with a 53% decrement in natural gas, we think the Accords offer part of that solution. So it has broader implications. Our hope is that it'll again become a priority, and I think it will. So um, in January, my family and I are going to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to visit a, a school friend given the current issues with the Saudi government and the U.S. government, should we be concerned about being there in January? Not at all. Uh, for first, good timing, right? January is much better than July. <laughs> so you've already, made the, you've already made the most critical decision. Um, second, I think you'll have a, a great time, and hopefully you'll get the time to, to get outside of Riyadh. Have you been there before? I have not. Okay. So you'll, you'll see it through your friend's eyes, but what you won't see is, is, what, is how Riyadh has changed uh, so markedly, um, and it's hard, you know, having you know, being your first time visiting there. But I would encourage you before you go to talk to others that have gone there for business or for whatever reason in the past to give you some sense of what it was like, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or even five years ago, so that you have a way to gauge the difference in what's taking place now, which is marked for all of us that have been there. Now, in terms of your the the, the core of your question. Look, the Saudis are incredibly smart. They've navigated a complicated relationship with the United States for a long time and vice versa. And the way they look at this is, uh, this is you know, the ebb and flow of a relationship. And while they may be at the ebb uh, at the moment in terms of agreement with Washington and cooperation on, on issues like energy, for example, as is most uh, publicly the case, they still look at the United States as a strategic partner. They're heavily invested in the United States and vice versa. There are 50,000 Americans that live in Saudi Arabia and work in Saudi Arabia, and that's not likely to change. Our interests are so convergent 
that it's unlikely that this is going to result in a dramatic rift. And second, hospitality in this part of the world is an Olympic sport. And the Saudis are, if not gold medalists, they're certainly silver. Um, but uh, you'll have a great time, I'm sure. Thank you. I was hoping that would, that would be your answer. I'm trying to guess my wife. She's still <laughs> You're going to have a great time, especially, again, if you can get outside. Of, I mean, Riyadh is, is, is a great place. There's lots to see in Riyadh, but there are a lot more fascinating places. Alola in the north, I think, is an area where they're just, you know, trying to attract global tourism and should. And as you'll see, it rivals Petra and in some ways exceeds what you can see in Petra and Jordan. Um, Jeddah on the Red Sea is also fantastic. So I hope you have the time to get out and about and you'll have, I hopefully, the right guide. I'm sure you will uh, with a friend that lives there. So I think you're going to have a great time. Of course. I think the common wisdom was, or maybe it's just my presumption was that the difficulty in putting this together might have been um, uh, with regard to these countries' relationship with the Palestinian, with the Palestinian people, and that's why it didn't happen. So what kind of things did you do in that, or how was that an issue in the creation of the Accords? That's a great question. Um, first, I would say is that you know, we, we made a concerted effort on the Israel-Palestinian front and put a lot of time and energy in creating the Peace to Prosperity Plan which was published in January of 20. And while we were you know, just turning our attention to what would result in the Abraham Accords, the priority was to get that plan out as a good faith effort, as a start point of negotiation and say, look, we think that there's an interest here. We think there's a convergent interest. We think that there should be active discussions between the two parties. And we think the United States has a role to play. And again, we invested a lot of time and energy to produce that plan. The plan was rejected out of hand on the Palestinian side of it, which we never expected they would accept, but it would be the start point of conversation. Of course, we had hoped they would accept it. But at the end of the day, the conversation went nowhere. Now, we, you're left with a choice that's confronted the U.S. from a policy perspective for some four decades, and that is, do you continue to try and make progress on an issue which defies resolution and is, by all accounts, one of the most intractable problems known to man? Or... Can you take another path and pursue peace with the rest of the Arab world? Because the Palestinians are only a small portion of it at the end of the day. And so the rest of the Arab world was willing to have this conversation and wanted to have this conversation. And once, once we were willing to listen to them, and we always were, we, I think, arrived at the right conclusion that sometimes you have to wait on some fronts and still make progress on others that are available. And at the end of the day, the calculation is that Israel's relationship with its other Arab countries improved makes it easier at some point in the future for them to help resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict, which I truly believe is the case. In other words, it's easier now that you have other countries with Israel helping Israel get to the right place and helping broker between the two sides. But that is going to take time. And it's not going to take time because of Israel's relationship with the Arab world. It's going to take time for the Palestinians to get to a place where they're willing to have this conversation. At some point, I think they inevitably will. And again, Israel will not be alone, and neither will the Palestinians, because there'll be a lot of other countries, a lot of other Arab Muslim countries there that are invested in the resolution of this problem. But they too believe that this is going to take time. Uh, but again, uh, it was a recognition on our and their part that we should not hold progress on the relationship between Israel and its other Arab countries based on the Palestinian file alone. It wasn't their interest, it wasn't their wish. And so I think at the end of the day, we've made progress where the, con the conventional wisdom was that it was not possible. And I think we're in a stronger position for it. And I'll also add that we're actively working 
on, on, on active projects, some old, some new, that will provide direct dividend and benefit to the Palestinian people because that's what the Abraham Accords member countries want. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Samir Al-Taki. I'm Syrian. I was heading a Center for Strategic Studies in the United Arab Emirates, and I was on the other side of the fence, let's say, when you were preparing for the uh, Abraham Accord. Uh, we received many of our Israeli colleagues just to study with them the details of the peace and everything you were doing. We were a kind of a shadow for this from the Emirati side. But let me uh, just comment which, for the sake the question of the gentleman who used to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm a member of a senior researcher who are working with the Queen's College for the Ibrahim project. We were taking students from the United States, from the Ivy League students, to the region, visiting Israel, the West Bank, and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Now we were advised not to go to Saudi Arabia and not to go to the United Arab Emirates. It's the, uh, now those two countries for students in the university are considered to be the third in the division, you know, maybe in the State Department in terms of advising to go or not advising to go. So it's not prohibited, but our students won't be able to go to Saudi Arabia, not and even not to, uh, the, to the United Arab Emirates. I'm telling you this because this could be an information that could be, we could work on it. The second issue is that uh, my, I have great concern about the Abraham Accord. If they keep on being as such, they will be very s s uh, shallow and they won't be able to implement themselves and it, it happened previously in the region. When the relations kept being very s shallow and we didn't, it's not Iran who will unite the Arabs with Israelis. The Arabs and the Emiratis know very well that Israel will never attack Iran. That won't happen. This calculation is obvious in their mind. So they could ally about deterrence, but it's not the perception. The, the main vacuum is the lack of an American policy vis-a-vis, -vis, holistic uh, American policy vis-a-vis -vis the region. Prioritizing, we have no more leverage. Turkey. Saudi Arabia, you know the relations, and whom then? Israel, you know, unfortunately, I would, we would, were working extensively to try to give it some leverage in the region, but without some political, you know, uh, uh, tricks to do with the Saudis, for example, it's very important to do something now. And first of all, uh, we were, we presented to the Emiratis a long program, how to, they could be, the Emiratis could become a platform to facilitate the appeasement of the Palestinians, controlling security, etc. And they did have in Yemen much, a much better experience. And, but unfortunately, without an American policy, the Emiratis won't do it. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you very much for the, for the question, sir. I, I share your concern in this sense that, look, it's a, it's a challenging region. And it's not getting easier to navigate for reasons you mentioned. It, it certainly helps to have a concerted policy. I would agree that it's important uh, to do that. We took concerted efforts to document what our policy was and promulgated accordingly so that it was clear. Government's a huge bureaucracy. If you don't put things on paper, everyone interprets it their own way. Even when you put it on paper, they can do that. Uh, 
And so I agree with you in that sense. What I would say is that the region is better off with the accords than without it. And so while you're right that the waves will continue to come onto the shore, that the Abraham Accords provides a little bit more resilience than was the case before they were manifest. And I would say too that I don't think they're likely to dissolve. I think with only one exception, Sudan, because of the coup last October, now one year ago, this week, constitutes the only challenge in terms of to potential departure from the accord. I don't think that's the case and we're working to make sure that it's not. But for the most part, I don't think and I don't see any of the relationships that are, are going to reverse course. The question is, are they going to achieve their potential? And that I think is where there's debate and I think uh, certainly it's gonna require concerted effort and an American strategy. Let's hope not, let's hope not. All right, um, you'll have to bear with me as I try to explain my thoughts, but my questions are on when you created the Abraham Accords, obviously there was a lot of talk about infrastructure and innovation in the Middle East that would come with implementing the Abraham Accords, and there was a lot about finding new oil sources um, and tapping into those oil resources. And so I'm guessing, I'm asking, like, was there an incentive for the U.S. beyond just facilitating peace and trade in these countries to encourage innovation um, and investment in that, you know, in those sources. And then on top of that, you also mentioned like our relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia has a lot to do with energy and oil. And so tapping into different oil reserves and energy resources in those countries also has potential to influence that relationship or create new relationships that have to do with oil and energy. So like how would that um, impact that? Yeah. No, so the very good questions. Um, what I would say is it's less about energy, including the potential for new discoveries for the United States from, from our perspective. At the time we concluded the agreement, the US was no longer dependent on Middle East oil, uh, and we shouldn't be. Uh, and so from our perspective, the energy resident or the energy potential, uh, it's more important how it impacts global markets. And what I mean is the US has been the architect of the global economy from which we're the principal beneficiary it serves our interests. And so regardless of whatever dependencies we may or may not have, the global economy continues to, has to continue to function in order for us to maintain our economy. It, if the global economy crashes, the US crashes along with it. It's the plane we built. And so in our minds, the question is, can we establish a closer relationship between our partners and allies, those with whom we have convergent interests and longstanding relationships, can we connect our, our partners and allies more effectively with us on an economic front and eventually in a security front so that they are not more aligned with our adversaries? That's the real, at the core of it, that's the vital national US interest here. And to be more specific, China imports some 40% of its energy and, and it's increasing, not decreasing, from the Middle East. If you add Australia, it's about 55%, almost 60%, and it's growing. And that dependency will never disappear. There is no substitute for it. And China's not actively looking for it. Now, the question is, will we cede that strategic advantage uncontested to the Chinese in the long term? Or will we at least ensure that it's in the control of our partners and allies so that it is held at risk? To look at this a different way, in the Second World War, it took us a long time to figure this out. We started out with transportation and road infrastructure, and the second step we took towards manufacturing, and we blew up a lot of things. And then we realized, one, we're gonna need it after the war when we successfully conclude it, and so will our partners in the region. And two, it's not terribly effective. Eventually, we realized without energy, there is nowhere to go. You can have all the planes and tanks that you want. It makes no difference if you can't put gas in them. 
And so the same holds true with China. If we're worried about a potential conflict, as we should be, the last thing we'd want to do is ensure they have an uninterrupted flow of very cheap energy. And so therefore, if you cede our interests in the Middle East and cede our partners and allies to the Chinese, to the Russians, who are equally producers, you're going to find yourself in an incredibly difficult spot, one, economically, because you'll allow the global economy to become increasingly under Chinese control, and two, if there's ever a competition that goes to conflict, you'll be at a strategic disadvantage. And the point is, that's a choice. It need not be so. It isn't the natural choice. Right now, it, it is not the choice. The countries in the region would rather be aligned with the United States and have been. It's our choice to pursue that or not. And right now, I would argue we're probably taking decisions that erode that. And I don't think it's the right strategic choice. The Accords was a recognition of that, and it's a decision on our part to pursue a policy to put our partners and allies in closer touch with each other and with us long term. I hope that helps. Um, good evening, sir. Yeah. Uh, though many countries have joined the Accord, but uh, still a lot of people think that we'll get a biggest breakthrough if Saudi uh, sign it, right? And before that, we need more normalization. And for the normalization, it is important if Pakistan uh, recognize Israel. So, and it's, I think it's much easier to bring the Pakistan on table before Saudi. So, are there any talks with Pakistan for that? So there have been, so excellent question, sir. <clears throat> there have been some uh, Pakistani uh, delegations to Israel in the last couple of months, which you probably have noticed. Members of the press corps, journalists, um, and other members of civil society. But assuming um, um, that you come from Pakistan or from India, okay, well then this is not gonna surprise you at all, um, that I think it's more complicated for Pakistan for all kinds of reasons than it is for Saudi Arabia. And I think in the near term, it's probably less likely. And they're not separate issues either because as you know, there's a strong historic relationship between Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region and, and Pakistan. But I don't think that Pakistan as a state will make that decision in the near term. Um, I think that it might, it might uh, establish a closer working relationship, perhaps with the Israel, which could be mutually beneficial, but it would be a very constrained, confined relationship to a very uh, narrow domain for the foreseeable future. Ultimately, I think you're right, but I think pa Pakistan would, go, would follow, certainly Saudi Arabia, not the other way around. That would be my inclination. I'd love to be pleasantly surprised, but I'm not sure that I will be. It's a very good question. Bangladesh, on the other hand, who knows? Sir. What is the position of Russia with the Abraham Accords where Russia has a partnership with Iran, but there's also 1.3 million former or Soviet citizens living in Israel? Yeah, it seems more every day. Um, uh, but, they're my, but not just Israel. Of course, they're, they're, uh, they're showing up in a lot of different places. So uh, it's a good question. I would say Russia, of course, doesn't like to see the U.S. any more involved in the region. Um, they've, they've been, I think, pleased with the trajectory for the last uh, 10 to 20 years, which is the United States has kept security in the region to a certain extent. We've borne the cost of it, so they don't have to. And second, um, that it has bled us in some ways of natural resources, the cost associated with that and wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And at the same time, they like now the decline that has taken place the U.S. position in the region because it gives them, uh, I think, a less 
challenged environment. So they're present in Syria, which was, again, a miscalculation, and I think we opened the door to that involvement. I think it was a mistake, and we're paying for it, and we will pay for it. I think we did the same thing, uh, less actively so, in Libya, and we're paying for it there. The same could happen in Sudan uh, if we're not careful. And so Russia, I think, would like to see us maintain some semblance of a balance of power so there isn't an outright conflict. But at the same time, its principal interests are economic, just like ours are. They are an energy producer. The region's an energy producer. They are competitors at the end of the day. Uh, they could if they wanted to and would love to supply them with arms and equipment, but the problem is Russian arms and equipment is garbage. And we didn't just know that in Ukraine. We've been seeing it in Syria. The best advertisement for anyone's equipment has been Russian use of it in Syria. All they can do is shoot down their own aircraft. So at, at the end of the day, they'd love to sell equipment, but it's not entirely likely to still be some of that. They really want is a competitive advantage over the global markets. OPEC Plus gives them a way to do it. In the summer of 2020, in fact, a year ago, two years ago, we managed to get, for the, uh, the umpteenth time, a, a cooperative agreement with OPEC Plus to increase cuts production, which is what we were seeking to stabilize global markets. And they were cooperative in this sense, and the Russians fought against it because they wanted higher prices. The region did too, but we were able to work with them. Now we're seeing the opposite, where Russians have greater influence over OPEC Plus and global energy markets than we have. Again, that's a choice. That is not a natural way for the market to act. That's not the way for OPEC in its history to act exclusively with the United States. There have been more times where they've acted with the United States than against us. And so I hope uh, we'll be able to reestablish a cooperative relationship. At the end of the day, Russia would like to see us maintaining some semblance and preventing an escalation into conflict. Two, to give them competitive advantage over oil markets. And three, not to challenge their uh, growing desires to have an increasing footprint in the Mediterranean. Mr. Greenway, thank you so much for coming to Cleveland. I'm going to ask you to put your intelligence hat on for a moment and help us to understand the threats and challenges to the accord, both those that are present in the region today looking to destabilize these relationships and those that you see a little further down on the horizon as potential or latent threats that may disrupt this down the road. Sure. And, and, and up front, it's a little disingenuous to say I was actually, I mean, I was technically an intelligence professional, but reality was I was, I was brought in that position really because of my operational experience to, to bring that to bear in the intel community. So uh, with fairness, uh, I'm not a trained intelligence professional. But what I will say is the greatest threat to peace and stability in the region is Iran. This is a universally held belief in the region, uh, and it should be no surprise. Uh, and I would put a finer point on it that they have since, uh, really for the last two years, been making unimpeded progress towards not just increasing enrichment, but also developing capabilities to deliver the, the output of that enrichment. And so they are getting far too close to the development of a nuclear weapon, and there are low costs or consequences that they're bearing as a result of it. And that has everyone in the region incredibly uh, disconcerted, to put it mildly. And it has for some time. And their concern on top of it is there seems to be no plan to deal with it. And that has them even more concerned. And so what they see is a runaway train threatening the entire region in a very material way. So you could produce a lot of oil, but if it can be hit by some 3,000 missiles on the other side of the Gulf, then what do you really have except something that is incredibly vulnerable and could be taken away from you, and there's not much you can do about it. And again, a decreased U.S. presence in the region to prevent that from happening, again, adds to this uncertainty and this unease. So to your question, the greatest risk still comes from Iran. 
And regardless of what we see happening with the population, which is incredibly encouraging, we've seen it before, but this is certainly unique in many ways, and hopefully will be successful, I think, at bringing the people back to something and a government that represents their interests, uh, uh, which would be a welcome change in the region. But barring that, I think the, the, the trajectory right now is Iran is, is moving towards an objective which makes it more difficult for us to respond. It makes it a more... Uh, threatening for the countries in the region, including Accords member countries, and it also undermines the global economy because the last thing we want is Iran to have a vote on the entire or some 80% of the world's petroleum resources as we're recovering from the pandemic and heading into potentially a global recession. And I would say lastly that it's not just a nuclear threat, that it continues to be a threat from the militias that they've organized all the way from Hezbollah in Lebanon to the West Bank and Gaza, to Syria, to Iraq, and, and Yemen as well. And so that constellation of threats, I think, has the region uh, incredibly disconcerted. And I think it threatens the Accords expansion to a certain extent. It could prevent them from reaching their full potential. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, what they're looking for, hoping for, and expecting is the United States to re-engage and address this threat with them and not in opposition to them. Uh, and um, hopefully that will occur. But without question, that, I think, has occupied their minds uh, for some time, and they don't see an answer to it absent U.S. reengagement and change of policy. Um, so as kind of a follow-up to that question, how do you think that, like, the rise of non-state actors right now in the international system, like NGOs and extremist groups, could pose a threat to the Abraham Accords? Well, hopefully not NGOs, um, but uh, point taken. Uh, so we'll, we'll, st we'll start with the non-state actors, the terrorist organizations. First principle is they'll always exploit a vacuum, right? Given time and given space and given resources, and it doesn't take much, they will um, always exploit that to their advantage. And the debate in the terrorist community is still, I think, divided between who to who to uh, focus your time and attention on. Threats within the region, governments hostile to your ideology, or the foreign nations that are viewed as the principal support behind them, the far enemy in the case of the United States or Western countries. And so I think that there is uh, an increasing tension. And I would say too, as Iran continues to be a threat, what we've seen historically is the response to that in many cases often is uh, in an organization that can exploit that rationale. So Sunni extremist organizations will leverage Iran's increasingly an unnatural role in the region and destabilizing role and point to that as a rationale for their own existence. And so they'll draw popular support and they, they do on a routine basis. And so there is, I think, a justifiable concern that the conditions for resurgence of whether it's ISIS or whether it's Al Qaeda or whether it's both of them or another organization, the, the name doesn't matter, the ideology does. And that certainly will exploit the current circumstances to their advantage. The food insecurity issues that I talked about exacerbate that too because they'll find a population looking for answers and they will often attempt to insert themselves. And lastly, I would say, are ceding all of Afghanistan back to a terrorist organization with whom we, we toiled to take it away from uh, doesn't help. Uh, we've now given them uh, back uh, control of a country which they didn't exercise total control of when we arrived in 2001. And, and certainly now uh, we'll see uh, how well they manage it, but we left them some $83 billion worth of equipment and, and infrastructure that they never had access to before. 
And so in a lot of ways, it's a lot worse than what ISIS was when it was the size of, uh, of most central United States states. So I think the potential is certainly there. I, I would not be surprised if not addressed that we see a resurgence. I would think Afghanistan might be the place in which it comes first just because the seeds are deeply planted there and we've given them, unfortunately, way too much uh, water to grow. Uh, and again, last point too is when it comes to the accord member countries and collaboration, this is one of those things you don't want to do on a case-by-case -case basis. You want a standing agreement and cooperation between countries to address this kind of problem. You don't want to organize after the fact, like let's build a coalition to defeat ISIS. Okay, good and necessary, but there should have been one beforehand. We hope that there should, we hope there really should be an enduring regional security architecture that exists to handle this problem year in and year out, decade after decade. They want that too. Um, another question going off of that about food stability. Obviously, there is an incentive for both the United States and the various Middle Eastern countries in the Abraham Accords to achieve food stability. And you've talked about how Abraham, like you said, that the Abraham Accords has like helped improve food stability in some countries and given them space to start improving their food stability, especially with the Russia-Ukraine conflict going on. So how is the United States trying to help these countries achieve food stability or like in specific, how does the Abraham Accords specifically benefit these Middle Eastern countries? So it's a, it's a great question, a timely one. The United States is involved, some of its largest programs federally administered are through the Agency for International Development and the State Department and the promulgation of food assistance and support is extensive. Uh, and we have invested a great deal in the region, but globally on this front. You could argue about the degree of success, but I think you can't argue the fact that the U.S. is probably the most committed country in the world without exception. And you could probably add up the next five or ten behind us and they wouldn't get close. The World Food Program, again, a large beneficiary of United States aid, is active in the region and has experienced a decline in support. And the reason is, as the economy, as countries' economies are declining and they enter into a recession, they have to make difficult choices. Do I feed my own people or do I provide assistance? So as countries' economies contract, they have less to offer in assistance and aid. So that's now a global phenomenon. I don't think that, I don't know that that's impacted the United States yet, but it inevitably will. Transportation costs of moving food from one place to another, fertilizer costs, all have gone up significantly and all impact the trajectory, which is negative. So there is a, a, a crisis coming, I think almost without question, and it's gonna hit countries harder than others, some harder than others. The Middle East will be impacted without, without a doubt. What we are doing is we're helping them work together, again, to look at collaborative solutions. What I mean is Israeli companies famously have some of the best ag tech and irrigation, drip irrigation technology, and have managed to grow things in harsh conditions uh, in an unprecedented scale. That is and can and should be part of the solution for their neighbors, but it won't be the entirety of the solution. Now, all of them working together in order to seek increased productivity in countries like in the Sub-Saharan Africa, I think is where a significant amount of potential can be done. And I mentioned Sudan as one example among many where the potential is enormous, the cooperation is the answer. And so we're hopeful that the cooperation between Accords member countries, Israel plus Morocco, which by the way, it has 70% of the world's phosphate, which is the most prolific fertilizer in the world. And its crown jewel of its economy, uh, OCP, is now, we're, with our help, opening an office in Sudan, and we'll be launching uh, agricultural projects that we've helped put together. This is a step in the right direction. Expand that, and I think you'll get to alleviate the crisis. 
but it's coming and it's going to require preparation. The key is cooperation better, right, than isolation. And that is, I think, the point behind the Accords. It's a good question. We have time for about one more question. Um, so what do you think will be or is the impact of the Abraham Accords on balancing power in the Middle East, not just in terms of GDP, but also political power? Great question. Maybe the question. Uh, and it, it, one I'm well familiar with. I've had a lot of discussions, um, including with the president about this. And ultimately, it comes down to, at the end of the day, a sort of balance. Uh, and that balance equation is threats and capabilities to offset those threats. And we have, as I said, have been declining our presence in the region since we've scaled down wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But the truth is that our presence in the region, the U.S. military presence in the region, the lowest it's been since we've been keeping records. It's pretty low. Uh, and look, there's a, on either side of the political spectrum in the United States, there's a less of an appetite to remain heavily invested, especially from a military standpoint, globally, certainly in the Middle East. That's just a reality. And the argument has always been, well, if you withdraw, you're left with a gap, a gap between threats and your partners and your collective capabilities to address it. And the distance between those is called risk. That risk is significant. And as I said, global economies dependent upon energy. You like it and you don't like it. It doesn't matter. It's a fact. And it's not likely to change in the near future. And so that risk is massive and it's growing. Our attempt behind the Accords was to rebalance the scales. And the posit was this was that I don't argue, and we weren't arguing the U.S. should have uh, an increased security presence in the region. That's part of it. But the reality is our argument was our partners and allies should be better able to defend themselves working together and with our support and assistance. And so the way we wanted to address that risk was make our partners far more effective. And that means providing them capabilities that in almost every case they can, they can and want to pay for themselves, which is not always the case. And second is we would do that with less capital investment on our side. So another way to look at this is in 79 and in 94 with Egypt and with Jordan, we have up to this point spent billions every year equipping all three. And that was, I think, a good investment. And I think a necessary investment. With the Abraham Accords, we spent nothing. The commitment was they would purchase additional capabilities to offset that security risk. It's in our interests. It's in their interests. Ultimately, that, I think, is the way you circle it. You can't not accept that risk. You can't ignore it. Right? It's just it's impossible to cede our interests that way. We can't. So the only way to address it effectively is to make our partners more, more capable. And, and part of that is helping them work together to do so because a team is going to be more effective than individuals all day long.